it's easy to rig science, both from an experimental design perspective and from a statistical analysis perspective. It's simple. If you want, if you have a predetermined outcome in mind, that's very little to prevent the unethical person from um, cherry picking and manipulating their way to the outcome that was preconceived. Okay, welcome to this latest episode of the Elevate podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined in person by Nick Hudson here in London. Now, Nick may be familiar to our audience. He's featured three times on the Pandemic podcast prior to launching the Elevate podcast. And this is our opportunity to today to take an elevated view on what's been happening over the last couple of years and look at some of the depth of some of the trends and the undercurrents that have underpinned what we've witnessed over the last couple of years, examining some of the political factors, the economic factors, some of the socio-cultural elements, the technological elements, the legal and ethical elements, to take that level of depth of understanding so that we go beyond the debate around the minutiae of the policy issues and the pharmaceutical issues to actually start to understand what's driven this, what's underpinning it, and what can we do in order to move forward. So, Nick, it's a real pleasure to have you here on the Elevate podcast. What a, what a pleasure to be actually face-to-face and not zooming across the miles, eh? Indeed. Yeah. Now, for those who aren't familiar with you, uh, you're the chair of Panda. Chairman of Panda by night, uh, private equity investor by day, um, and scallywag the rest of the time. Yes. But, uh, yeah. I, uh, I have been very busy the last two years. Panda, Pandemics Data and Analytics was set up, yeah, in... April of 2020, we've been going hard at it, uh, pushing back against this insane policy response on on all aspects. It's not only about the data and the science, there's also the, as you said, the entire analysis of the political and cultural milieu that um, propelled this lunacy all around the world in this highly coordinated fashion. And where did this begin? You know, did you, with with Panda, did you publish an initial paper? Was it a, a, an yes. initial piece of analysis that started this? <clears throat> yes, there were there was a, a, a escalating informal discussion among like-minded individuals as we were sort of finding each other and realizing that we weren't the only ones with this, these concerns. And then, very quickly, um, late April, early May, we published a paper called Quantifying the Years of Life Lost to Lockdown, which made the simple point that we were heading straight into lockdown without any form of cost-benefit analysis having been performed. And that was the beginning of the journey. And from there, we proceeded to analyze all aspects of the the pandemic and the policy response and in a, in a very multidisciplinary and thorough way, mm. numerous articles and uh, appearances in, in media, interviews and podcasts and so on over, over the course of the, the next two years, the process of internationalizing the organization. Those are the main headlines. Um, and now we find ourselves much more concentrating on those socio-political issues with the a sense that we've kind of wrapped up the analysis. Yes, there, are, there will be ongoing um, retrospectives from a data and epidemiological and medical perspective that'll be ongoing for years but for the most part we kind of know what happened and what what went wrong and what was true and what was not true um, and it's time now to roll up the sleeves and get to grips with 
the much more complex and um, harder to analyze uh, political kind of setting for this whole story and its implications for all of our futures. Yes. Now, before we get into some of that discussion, mm. you met initially with like-minded people, mm-hmm. and I, for myself, found that hard at the beginning <laughs> to, to find those people. <laughs> yes, we all did. Uh, now, Panda has been prolific in its output, both in terms of reports, articles, data sets, uh, scientific analysis. From those initial like minds, could you tell us a little bit about how you've grown the types of uh, support that you've had and some of the academics and professionals that have uh, have locked arms with you over this last couple of years? Yeah, look, I mean, the thing we emphasized from the start was the complexity of the phenomenon that we were grappling with and the importance of bringing a multidisciplinary approach. So we were not at all of the mindset of trust the experts, trust those particular experts. They must be medical, they must be epidemiological, they must be virological. We brought in people from you know, a wide variety of scientific fields in addition to those three, and indeed from a wide variety of humanitarian, uh, you know, humanities uh, fields. Um, and that served us well, because it's, it's very helpful, for example, to have an ecologist on board who can talk about the interrelationship between viruses and humans and the rest of the, the animal world. Um, and that forces questions into the into the room, um, and you get that very vibrant, very um, mobile world of conjecture and criticism emerging. And that is the only way to create new knowledge. And so I think we did a good job of uh, sticking to that approach. Unfortunately, I would say the majority of the the academic voices and some of the voices from the corporate world were people who were unable to be um, uh, formal or, or open members of Panda and their involvement remained cryptic throughout, you know, and that persists because of this environment of cancel culture and smearing and, and um, censorship. It's one of the saddest aspects of all of this is that there are very few people in the academical corporate world who are truly independent and able to speak their minds without suffering severe con- consequences if they uh, trip any of the wires in the in the narrative structure. Mm. So it's part of the whole removal of dignity from human beings is to force them to toe the line lines with uh, extreme falsehoods. Yes, yeah, so mortifyingly embarrassing for somebody who knows the truth of to have to be either performatively or in, in speech acts, um, complying, going along with what is essentially a lie or a complex of lies. Mm. What's been your experience of that in Panda in terms of how your published material has been received, first of all, but I'll, I'll talk more about how these things have been suppressed. How has your published work been received by seasoned, credentialed individuals, the yeah. media? Uh, if, if you... If you took all of the responses seriously, you'd become um, mentally deranged because there's a huge range of response. You know, there were people who immediately said, yes, that's right, that's what I've been hoping somebody would say, or that's what I was thinking, and you've put it into words, or you know, they're very complimentary. And and the interesting thing is, you know, as, as the organization grew and our profile grew, I began to find that in public people would approach me. And initially I was quite disconcerted by that because... 
my perception looking at the media responses was that there were there were far more people who were critical than mm. complimentary mm. but in over the course of sort of almost two years of of having some kind of public profile and being um spotted a lot in public and approached by people a lot in public maybe hundreds or thousands of times in the last two years I, i've yet to have a person approach me and say you nick hudson are a terrible person and what you're doing is wrong uh, that that is i get those um comments but only behind the veil of um, anonymized accounts on social media and, and occasionally um, uh, genuine accounts. But people don't seem to be either sufficiently courageous or to have sufficient levels of conviction about their own beliefs to actually come and have a conversation in public. And so I, what I encounter amongst members of the general public is an incredible warmth. Mm. Uh, it can take me... 10 or 15 minutes to make it to my table at a restaurant sometimes because there's just this outpouring of support and very, very em emotional kind of um, resonance that people have with the, the, not only what we're saying, but how we're saying it. And um, that's, that's really edifying, but it makes you think. It, it's, it's almost as if the, the media is projecting a, a temperature of society a read on the temperature of society that is just completely wrong in itself a, a, f a fabrication and that underneath the or behind the thin veneer of the soapbox commentators and social media is a much broader base of people who are deeply skeptical about what has happened and very supportive of what we have to say and have managed to access it despite all the censorship and smearing mm. you know and that that's quite something and you i have this optimism that at some point that will reach critical mass and do so in a on a, on a scale sufficient to significantly shift direction in the direction of travel of global policies and um yeah philosophies Yes, it's my hope that we will see that. Yeah. Um, and you and I, uh, Panda, and uh, one of our brands, Question Everything, we worked together on the Lockdown Summit last year. Yes, wonderful event, that. A fantastic yeah. event, really proud of that. But we experienced the same. There were mm. some key individuals that we would love to have spoken on the stage mm -hmm. to, to convey some of the issues that we've been looking at, including some of the political elements that we'll touch upon in a moment. But they, too, would not put themselves on the platform. They wouldn't even enable us to use their name as a footnote in the credits mm -hmm. uh, because of the very reasons you've articulated mm -hmm. this, this, the, the fear of consequence, the loss of funding, loss of reputation because it's going against the tide. However, do you see any green shoots of hope here institutionally? Are you starting to see people to buck that trend? Mm -hmm. is, there, is there an immediate hope for us here in this way? Yes. Yesterday, I had uh, lunch with an academic who has been a, a very key member of Panda for a long time. It was my first face-to-face -face meeting uh, with him. And um, it was a hugely important meeting for me because it, it, uh, something dawned on me that I'd perhaps had drifting around in the back of my head, but I hadn't really put into words. I think what we have as a, as a, as a very real issue is... A lot of academics and corporate people find their day-to-day -day work absolutely soul-destroying. They are, all of them, in, to some degree, depressed, uh, finding it difficult to get out of bed and be motivated by the work that they're doing at their respective institutions. 
And so when I floated the boat of saying, well, you know, if I could offer you um, uh, some reasonable fraction of your existing remuneration uh, for a limited term, you know, a couple of years, uh, no guarantees thereafter because who knows what happens, but, you know, would you, would you take that as a reasonable uh, risk? And it did, the answer was yes, you know, <laughs> of course I would, because that, you know, the eyes lighting up immediately at the prospect of coming into an institution where, uh, you know, um, questioning minds and uh, people who actively engage in the world of open conjecture and criticism and creative thinking are not only permitted, but welcomed, are celebrated here. Um, that idea, which is surely at the heart of anybody who claims to be intellectually engaged in whatever domain, um, you know, that, that's, that's what it means to be in, the, in, in that kind of role. So you can see, you could see almost in advance the restoration of a sense of meaning and purpose before anything had been formalized. So my sense is that there are a lot of good people in all sorts of institutions who are desperately sad and will move. They will move. They have now understood that the monetary trade-off for integrity is actually a very high one. There's, there's a, they, they would be prepared to swallow quite a lot of reduction maybe in the standards of, on their standards of living and their financial security in order to maintain their integrity and to, and to access, re-access a sense of meaning and purpose. Now that is a hugely positive thing. That is manna from heaven for me. It means that I begin to see the possibility for um, Panda becoming an organization that um, reinvigorates that which the universities have killed, um, or at least uh, you know turned into a shattered carcass, really. <laughs> you know, um, because it's it, what passes now for academic discourse at the universities is shameful. It's, it's uh, insipid, um, morally torpid. Um, just desperately sad stuff that this grant um, hamster wheel um, and the highly um, gate-kept uh, research almost compulsory bias introduction in all sorts of scientific research and, and humanities research you know you, you literally can't stray your results are not allowed to be certain things you're not allowed certain outcomes so they're forced into producing and manipulating work with incredible bias and we've seen some quite honest reflections of that i'll never forget reading that european cdc on the cdc meta study on masks cloth masks and they were quite open about it they said the vast majority of the studies that they had looked at exhibited signs of uh, extensive bias. It's, you know, it's quite something. Uh, so you can see science being rigged, and it's easy to rig science, both from an experimental design perspective and from a statistical analysis perspective. It's simple. If you want, if you have a predetermined outcome in mind, it's very little to prevent the unethical person from um, cherry picking and manipulating their way to the outcome that was preconceived.
Yes, and that's before you add in the corporate interest, the, the sources, the yeah. funding, the group dynamics, the human, the the human element, yes. all yes. the incentives, yeah. just in the, by virtue of the concoction of the study itself can skew the results in, yeah. into, what, into whatever direction you wish to see. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting observation, Nick, because there is plenty of data to, to back that up prior to the pandemic about job satisfaction. You know, in, certainly in the UK, we've got record yes. levels uh, and job-related anxiety, depression, it's, yeah. it's like a ticking time bomb. David Graeber's book, um, Bullshit Jobs, is a, you know, despite the, the subject matter being incredibly sad, is a delightful read. It, it, it's, it's almost hysterically funny um, because it's so accurate. And I remember from my days in the corporate world often just looking around at people and saying, you know, how do you do this every day? Right? Do you not stop to think about what this is doing to your soul, you know? Mm. <laughs> Uh, to your uh, concept of yourself and the meaninglessness of so much of the activity, especially when it comes to those endless meetings and committees and uh, risk management processes and safety-oriented stuff and all the mumbo-jumbo about diversity and inclusivity and, and uh, the, the massive amount of um, you know, wheel spinning that goes on around those issues, never generating anything that, that makes the world a better place, but actually making it very awkward and in, inconvenient for a lot of people um, and diverting attention away from substantive and meaningful issues. And that, I think, is descriptive of a huge range of organizations, of you know, both in terms of organization type and industry and geographic location, but also in terms of scale. You know. The stuff pushes down into the mid-sized corporations, which are rather large in number, and to all sorts of non-governmental organizations and so on. They're, they seem to be wrapped up in um, a sort of straitjacket of um, um, philosophical boundedness that uh, prevents them from actually contributing anything positive to the world at all, you know. Well, it's a story I resonate with. You know, I spent eight years in corporate myself and came to that point of dissatisfaction and the the lack of, the complete lack of meaning in my own existence. And it came to my 29th birthday and I thought, I've got one year to turn this around before I enter into a new decade of my life. Yes. Um, Now, I made the leap, but it was a leap of faith. I was single at the time. I didn't have a family. But I can imagine for many people making such a leap is, is quite a risk. The other challenge I found is there was a lack of meaningful alternative. You know, wherever I looked, I just saw more of the same, different industries, more corporate bureaucracy. Yes. So I suppose what's exciting from the story you've shared is that now with Panda and others, there are now these new organizations that mm. do provide a real alternative. Yes. And the visceral experience of the pandemic, because I think finding one's purpose in life is a hard enough journey in itself. Mm. But this is... This experience has put so many of us in a position where we've come face to face with precisely what we stand against, culturally, socially, philosophically. And as a result, I think it's lit a fire under a lot of people. So now when they find that there are organizations like Panda or Elevate or other groups that are looking to do something different, there's a real hope. Now, the difficulty for all of us is actually going through that transformation from being a grassroots organization that's worked, I know you've done the same, worked largely with volunteers and people who have willingly given their time, mm-hmm. 
to becoming financially secure organizations that can offer those opportunities where people can do real meaningful work. Yes, yes. What, what do you think the opportunities are for organizations like Panda moving forward? How, how do organizations like ours move forward and start to formalize in such a way? It's a, it's an, it's a good question, and I, I, I like to respond often by almost ducking it because <laughs> you know, I, I'm a firm believer in keeping an eye on the theory of knowledge at all times, you know, making sure that your thinking isn't being distorted by your desires and, and, and uh, so that you're not seeing reality. And uh, one, of, one of the core sort of axiom, axiomatic things in epistemology is this idea that um, future knowledge generation is fundamentally unpredictable. Mm. If it is predictable, the implication is that you actually have the knowledge now, you know. So we, we, if we have an organization that is structured to, to generate new knowledge, its future will be um, radically uncertain. And I'm comfortable living with that uncertainty. So I can say that the organization will continue to pay a great deal of attention to sh building its structure and its, um, its way, its tone, very much around the objective of facilitating knowledge generation. And then having said that, I have to conclude that the, the forecast con it contains a huge funnel of doubt and radical uncertainty as by which I mean that to even speak of a funnel is, is uh, ridiculous. You know, you know, you can't see what it contains at all. And I think that's where, where we're taking things is towards this. Um, the, the things that you want to see, you want to see some, uh, the, the ability to retain institutional knowledge, uh, meaning that people need to have some kind of security over the medium term, that this is where they are and this is where they work. Uh, needs, you need to move towards replacing volunteers with permanent people um, so that, that there isn't the situation where as soon as somebody hits a speed bump, whether it's from external or internal pressure, that, that you find them evaporating and disappearing with all the institutional knowledge that they've created or, or internalized. Um, so, you know, I see that as um, the future. And part of the knowledge creation will be, the knowledge generation will be around how to bring that to be. And it's okay not to have the answer to every last question. It doesn't mean that you don't have a strategy. Our strategy is to create a learning, rapidly learning organization that's capable of creating new knowledge in a wide variety of fields, including the field that contains the organizational theory itself. So that's, that's where we're going. Um, and this initiative of ours called the PESEL Initiative, you, you summarized the contents of it. It's broadly speaking, the socio-political aspects of the pandemic and this general idea of pandemic preparedness and the broader societal context. That project is coming to fruition right now with its first component. And we are um, investigating alternatives methods of funding. Uh, we've costed the whole thing out and I think we're getting close to really uh, formally launching that and having underway the exemplary project. Um, might be worthwhile actually talking about that project a little bit to give your viewers a, a sense of the type of work that we'll be doing. Um, 
you know, in, inside this whole um, domain of pandemic preparedness, there are a, a great many kind of uh, implicit assumptions and so on that uh, need to be, be made explicit and questioned. Um, so you have your, uh, the, the essence of it is we have a COVID policy response that we've seen that we can look back at now and we can say, well, does this contradict the state of knowledge at the beginning? What what are the elements that are contrary to the um, hard-won guidelines and um, principles and constitutional documents of various organizations, the orthodoxies of the field, and what to what extent are those um, notions incompatible with what we've learned since? You know, um, and how would we how how do we flesh out and describe the many ways in which the response contradicted wisdom. Um, that's not a trivial undertaking because there are so many elements that, that um, and you, all, you also can't fully answer what was contradicted without answering how, what pressures were brought to bear, what um, influences, what uh, uh, incentives um, and by whom and very often those questions go back a couple of layers. So it's not a trivial matter of sitting down and saying, well, who done it, you know, <laughs> uh, or WEF done it, or uh, Klaus Schwab, or Tedros, or Bill Gates, or Fauci, you know, this business of sort of trying to pin the causality on one grand narrative is itself a, a fundamental epistemological blunder. So you want to see the project uh, in, in its full, in the full richness of, of of its reality, and allocate the resources appropriately. And I think Panda will produce the work, the seminal work, on analysing what went wrong and how. And we will staff that property with brilliant people from relevant fields and some tangential fields. And we will put together the documents that become the reference point, the go-to point for people who are activists, people who are launching legal suits, people who are trying to work out better ways of doing things and come up with new policy prescriptions. That's the kind of direction of travel for Panda. That's where we're going. And it's a very exciting kind of juncture when you're at the point of putting together the phasing of that kind of project, um, looking at the, 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 the questions big and small, staffing the project, working out you know, the type of person that you want, um, their background and character and uh, personality, the, how you're going to go about assembling the vast research resources that are required to support that kind of investigation, how do you um, test the ideas and think of ways to challenge your own explanations that you're generating. So it's, it's hugely exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm really um, uh, very enthusiastic to, to roll up my own sleeves and start helping that project along. Um, I, think, I think I'm going to need to reassess how much time I spend on some other things because I do really want to commit to it. Um, and I enjoy everything else. That's a problem, isn't it? But uh, <laughs> yes. yeah, so that's where, we, that's where we're going. Yes. Now... I, you know, Panda, myself, others, 
we've spent a couple of years looking at what I call the propositional level, mm-hmm. examining policy, implications mm-hmm. of policy, mm-hmm. getting into the nuances and nitty gritty of every piece of legislation, every uh, piece of the science. And I think, as you stated, we've, we've been able to see some pretty clear conclusions, but it takes me to this Dunning-Kruger curve where now <laughs> over the edge of that hump, Mm-hmm. We're in the, it's complicated or it's complex zone, which, which yes. I think speaks into the work that you're doing now because you're right. People have, we've examined what's happened and how it's happened. Yes. People are speculating who's behind it. Yes. And that often leads to why did this happen? Yes. And what, what I think we've initially witnessed, both to the answer of the who and the why questions, is a very much oversimplistic analysis of how things have happened and why. What I'm excited about about your project is hopefully it'll start to understand beneath the hood somewhat to get right. to get a grips of you know, what's happened and why. But but what what was what's the trajectory? What's the history of this? Yes, and what's the consequences of following that path? Yeah, and it, it you I think it's a a sensible and wise point of de- departure to straight away acknowledge that as you say some of the complexity there is so rich that it will defy analysis for eons um, but we can say with certainty that there are elements of planning and political agenda there are elements of plain old error uh, cock up um, there, and there are elements of emergence um, and all of them interact so a brave man who who's, makes the claim that we will get it right, we'll just get it less wrong, you know, and, and, and over time um, we create a set of explanations which are subjected to criticism. Some of them will, be, them will be found wanting and they will be replaced with better explanations and the understanding will evolve. What I've just described there is the universal approach to knowledge generation and the only approach to knowledge generation. So we will keep that alive even if all of the supernationals and universities are, are falling into the, the abyss of stasis and, uh, and um, regression, really. Yeah, so well, that's, to me, that's the pursuit of open knowledge, open science. Mm-hmm. That's something that's been woefully absent. And it's clear to me, looking back over time, is it's not new to the pandemic. This, mm. you know, as you spoke about with your meeting, there's this institutionalized rot, really. It's mm. become an overly linear, academia has become overly linear. Mm. It's, it's still almost operating towards the first industrial revolution of the kind of production line mindset. There's been a lack of creativity, innovation, lateral thinking, in my view, from my early assessment. Uh, and it seems to me what you're approaching is, is a, as a purer form of open mm. science. Mm. My question to you then is how do you prevent falling into the same traps that Right. that we've seen elsewhere. Groupthink, how do you challenge your own assessment, your own biases, your own conclusions? How, how, how do you intend to role model that real open process? Well, it's fascinating that you use the, the term role model because I think a lot of it is about um, language. And there again, you know, we may have to generate new language for, for uh, nurturing the, the, the truly um, expansive um, generative organization. Um, for example, and I do this quite regularly, I, I try to stop people from saying what we know is. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, our best explanation for the time being of the events that we've seen is. 
that creates an entirely different uh, orientation and posture towards the matter at hand where you um, are putting forward a strong hypothesis but you're holding it weakly. You're open to the idea that somewhere out there is somebody else with certainty will establish a better explanation and that you will not fall over yourself clinging to the old one when, when that happens. Um, so it's, it's in awareness of the, the psychological uh, um, and emotional postures that one needs to adopt. It's in uh, the, 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 the language that you're using. It's in having the discipline of, I hate the term calling people out. You know, it's not, it's not about calling them out, but just, you know, nudging them a little bit into the, into the track of maintaining the generative mindset. Um, all of these things are crucial and it, it's the opposite of what's going on in most institutions where you have to swim between the flags, where you have to um, uh, speak within an Overton window, you have to um, learn a set of statements that you can regurgitate and from basically from by rote learning because there's no way to get to them logically, you know. Um, that's, the, that's, the, that's how you design or, or the culture that you instill in organizations if you want them to remain the same or go backwards. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, I think yeah, I, I'd love to talk about this for hours because it's, it's, the, it's, it's where the rubber hits the road, really. It's, if, if, you, if you cannot um, formulate the, 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 the internal culture and, and environment that uh, produces, is conducive to, that kind of thinking, then you're lost. You're not going to win the battle. And uh, if you can, I think it's impossible that you don't. Yes. Win. So there's a, a quest for open science, open knowledge generation. Yeah. It's my hope that what you do, what, you, what you're describing here, I'm as interested in the process as I am the potential outcomes Very much so. yeah. that could come yeah. from here. And this, this generative process... I think comes with an, a, a need for open source transparency so that you can uh, have your assumptions and mm -hmm. hypotheses tested and mm -hmm. challenged your conclusions, your process, your methodology. But it's my hope that you document the process along the way in terms of how you're developing this type of organization, because I yeah. think there is as much to learn in the way in which you embrace this project as there is the actual project itself. Um, I feel that this could, could help and spark a wave of new knowledge generation because panda aren't the only organizations will no, not be the right and we'll never be the only one hopefully no, yes not the only otherwise ones, we yeah. have to say <laughs> panda becoming the source yeah. of all truth otherwise yeah absolutely and <laughs> never you know um so so yes i think the process is uh very interesting and these the the one thing that it makes sense to talk about because as i say the actual content of the knowledge that's going to be generated is fundamentally unpredictable so yeah let's talk to the process um and I think even even that process should be open source in a way and, and itself critiqued. Um, but I think I think those things you point to, the the transparency, the open source uh, nature of the the research projects and so on, that's all uh, very wise stuff. I think there are sometimes um, sections of work or ele elements of work where that you don't want to put out there because they're sort of in draft form, contain errors, haven't been checked by. Uh, or cross-checked by people from outside a certain discipline. You know, when things are in that kind of 
flux. You don't want your documents out there being misinterpreted or, or containing, uh, you know, antimatter, <laughs> destructive of knowledge creation. Um, so you, 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 you don't want every single step of the process to be open, but certainly you want more openness and transparency than has been exhibited by governments around the world as they've waltzed around citing data that nobody can check um, in support of policies that nobody can see as being effective. <laughs> yes. Well, this brings me to another interesting part that I'm just genuinely curious about, Nick. Um, there's been a lot of debate about peer review um, yes. and you know, talking about the absence of peer review within this, the, the last couple of years. But there's also this distinction mm -hmm. that Brett, Brett Weinstein made at the weekend uh, at the Better Way conference about uh, reviewed by peers. Yes, and one it's of your open peer review. Yes, how that's different. Yes. But but one of the yes. opening gambits you made is that you pulled together a group of a multidisciplinary yes. group. Yes, and I think there is no matter how you look at peer review. Historically, we've looked at uh, peer in the terms of category of peers. So if you're a virologist, other virologists. Another virologist. Yes. Why? We have, we why? Is that why? we haven't yeah. had that breadth? Yeah, and, and, and peer review by invitation only. Um, <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, I, I think one of the components here, I'll, I will be very surprised if we don't move in the direction of an open source type peer review. Um, maybe it has something to do, there's an element of blockchain, something that preserves features or, or, or elements of content or process uh, over time. And maybe some kind of uh, system of um, sort of upvoting and downvoting, if you like, the, the, the comments and criticisms um, and maintaining that in a, in a transparent way. I think that kind of peer review, if that's not in our future, then I'll be surprised and probably disappointed because I think it would be hugely beneficial to um, have work exposed to anybody who's prepared to take the time to... Um, think about the work critically. I mean, there's many papers that have been published and gotten found their way into into journals and past the, the review boards and so on. Of those journals, are not worth the paper they're printed on. Uh, I, I rather sympathise with uh, John Ioannidis's 2005 article where he said, "Look, most scientific uh, papers these days are uh, nonsense." not worth the paper they printed on. And that was 2005, and I think things have deteriorated sharply since then. So almost everything that's published, sometimes I get the feeling is just garbage. Mm -hmm. um, therefore political, not for um, uh, epistemological reasons. Yes, uh, I, I mean, I was having a conversation with another scientist mm -hmm. just recently. He said that his initial marker is in the early stages of the paper, is there a documentable, testable hypothesis? Yeah, falsifiable hypothesis. And he said the yeah. amount of papers yeah. where that is woefully absent from the, yes. from the get-go, he, yes. he instantly sends it back, regardless of what the rest of the contents of the paper is. Yes. If you cannot test the hypothesis, then this is yes. not a scientific paper. It's maybe worth dwelling on that for a little bit, because I think the, the old logical positivism, um, the empiricism still creeps through in that a lot of our speech and attitudes towards scientific work because whilst I understand the sentiment of that uh, scientist or whoever he was, um, for me it's wrong. Interesting. Uh, yeah, we, we, it, you make a mistake when you think that you are dealing with writing down the truth 
uh, because truth has that story of finality around it and you want to test whether the thing is true. It's not, this is not possible. You write down an explanation and it's a good scientific explanation if it is falsifiable. If you yes. can pick up that paper and see a way, an experiment to perform uh, at, uh, some kind of, um, even if it's only a thought experiment, uh, some kind of internal contradiction to highlight something. If there's, if there's a way of falsifying the explanation, a plausible way of falsifying the explanation, then it is a scientific explanation and, and, then, and, and therefore good for the purposes of science. But to call it truth and to try and lend it an air of authority or dogma at that point that you've decided that it's true is a, is a fatal thought. Um, we, we simply regard uh, the best works as our best explanations for the time being. And that distinction, I think, is hugely important. It's a massive failing that it's not taught to scientists generally and to um, medical professionals and, and I would say even to you know, members of the general public in schools. That, that, that notion that we're always able to improve on, on our explanations um, and that is un- everywhere and at all times true uh, is, is crucial for me. And if, when it goes missing... It goes, what goes missing along with it is that little candle, the little flame of, uh, of, of, of hope and anticipation of further creativity. Yes. Now, to, in, in fairness to the individual, it was a kind of back of the conference room conversation, and it may be that you're, you're on the same page. Uh, but that, that point of difference, that point of clarification is a really interesting one. Yeah, and it's, a str- it's, it's a familiar phrasing that I'm responding to so yes. I think my guess is you probably nailed it that you remembered it precisely because mm-hmm. that's exactly people say we are you hear people saying things like we are we're we're they're interested in control and a narrative and a political agenda we're interested in the truth you know and that's actually making the same mistake as the other side no we're interested in uh, engaging with reality to um, get closer to reality or to the truth um, knowing full well that it's a complex world and we can only approach the truth asymptotically, you know. I never quite get there. There's always that scope for, the infinite scope for improvement and uh, further knowledge creation. There is no end. Um, it, you know, the, the, the biblical kind of construct or at least religious construct of the world without end uh, comes to mind when I think of knowledge and and scientific endeavor and uh, one of the many examples of how beautifully small religious memes encapsulate something deep you know something really deep that's that's uh, axiomatic fundamental Um, I think that's one of them the world without end you provoke a thought um, there's a gentleman called professor Donald Hoffman and I don't feel familiar with his work but he speaks into this piece we're hoping to bring him on the show actually Kevin okay, yes uh, vaguely familiar he, Dan yeah he, he's done some work on perception of reality mm-hmm. and his his is he the guy who covers delusions I don't uh, know if he covers yeah. delusions but he speaks into the idea that human beings are hardwired for mm-hmm. our perception of reality is is based upon our survival as opposed to the uh, perception of truth. truth yeah for sure yeah. Um, but that itself is an observation. Again, he, and he's very clear yeah, on that. He, yeah. he makes that very clear, yeah. and he, which which is 
again, when I hear conversations like that and why I'm interested to bring him on the show, he also speaks into this space where yes. the unknown, the unknowing and the unfolding and, and the, 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 the ability to try to find a way to falsify these mm -hmm. assertions. The piece I'd like to just draw upon from what you've just shared around something that I think is really important what we've witnessed in the last couple of years is we've got this cultural, social, philosophical component to what's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. How do you apply the kind of methods that you've just shared around scientific process to something that's a lot more abstract if you're trying to assess you know, what role, uh, you know, let's say... Um, postmodernism and how it's led to this subjectivism and, and what role that's played in, in terms of the culture that we're experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. How would you distill some of those pieces down into something that's more quantifiable and testable? Um, well, you know, I think, I think fundamentally um, there's no area of knowledge that isn't subject to this, um, this ground reality that all creation of knowledge in that field can only proceed by conjecture and criticism. If there are fields that engage with degrees of complexity or, or phenomena of such complexity that it's, it's not uh, possible for us to perceive crisp falsification given the current state of our knowledge and technology, well, so be it. That's a challenge. But it's, it's no less the case that there um, is a possibility of improve, improving our explanations of how things work in fields like um, psychology and sociology, um, aesthetics, you know, morality and ethics, we can always improve our explanations for um, of, of reality and of how various objects and phenomena work. Um, there's no particular privilege for science in that regard. Um, we may demarcate something as scientific if the if the falsification is is patent and um, and readily discernible and then describe the less discernible ones as being non-science <laughs> but I'm not a big fan of that uh, um, bright line separation I think it's a little bit theoretical I see a continuum there are clearly issues where we are infants uh, from a knowledge point of view and uh, it, Many, many thousands of years of thoughts will be required before we become more scientific about those fields. But that doesn't, um, that doesn't take away from the idea that there is a, a, a grounding in reality in all those fields. So uh, let's look at aesthetics, for example. I would uh, regard the statement that beauty is in the eye of the beholder as uh, a very poor <laughs> assessment of the state of the world. Because... The fact that there are such things as famous paintings or famous designers or uh, famous composers and loads who were not would seem to suggest that people have a ready agreement as to what, as to Bach being better than um, Salieri or something like that, um, or uh, uh, Da Vinci being better than my 15 year old. Um, so we, we, we actually proceed through our lives under the assumption that there is a grounding in reality and in fields like aesthetics or morality and so on. Uh, and if we don't, it's very dangerous. If you become a relativist, uh, you can go wrong in more ways than you can count or imagine. And so, so, so for me, that, um, <clears throat> that process, I, I, I don't engage with the more complex issues with any less 
hope of being able to improve the explanations. They may come in strange forms. Um, so uh, I heard a brilliant podcast the other day um, involving uh, Jamie um, uh, Franklin and uh, James Dellingpole, where they were discussing Dostoevsky. And it struck me that they were almost advancing Dostoevsky as a set of explanations for the human condition. And I like that. That's the right way to think about it. So um, crime and punishment, uh, uh, or, or, or the brothers Kar- Kar- Karamazov, Karamazov, sorry, I never know how to say that because I've only ever read it. <laughs> um, um, but uh, that, that, those, that those novels are, if you like, extended explanations for all sorts of psychological phenomena. And if, you, if, you, if I went with my gut, I would say probably better explanations than exist in the explicitly psychological tracts of a Freud or a Jung or, yeah. Well, yeah, so I would like to extract this further because you've, you've touched upon religion, ethics, morals, some of these stories, and it's, it's often said that the religious texts, the, the oldest texts, are some of those roadmaps to yes, self-understanding very much and so. personal yeah. development. But I've also heard you talk, talk about the God-shaped whole. Could yes. you elaborate on what that means in the context of what we've witnessed over the last few years? Yeah, so I, I mean, an observation that I've made is that uh, when it comes to secularization in the 20th century and our own, um, there's an, a lot of throwing out of babies with bathwater. And uh, for quite shallow reasons, maybe a failure to feel a strong metaphysical conviction with respect to a particular caricature of God or the numinous, the spiritual, whatever. You know, just a, a failing to, uh, you know, at the absence of any particular level of conviction around a caricature, causes people to throw out uh, an enormous um, time-honored story um, to their immense detriment. Um, the solutions that have evolved over time, there again that word evolution, knowledge generation proceeding only by evolution, the solutions that have evolved over time that address our social realities as we as our cultural evolution peels away from our biological evolution are sophisticated and extend into the mists of time um, across eons probably predating even our humanity you know uh, reaching back into animalian stages some, some of the time there would be there would be probably distant echoes but uh, what what I'm getting to is that there's a richness in these uh, rules and systems and um, systems of taboos and, and um, um, admonishments and prescriptions and yeah, advice, if you like. In, in those systems, there, there, there is a set of solutions for problems that we've lost sight of, if we ever were actually consciously aware of them at all. And um, it's the brave man who strips the entire thing away um, because what will happen in that process is that all sorts of unintended consequences come about uh, as those uh, prior problems that had been solved quite happily are then revealed, emerge all over again. Um, So I I think that the process of uh, secularization left this God-shaped hole and 
what I mean by it? Well, that, that's quite a broad and philosophical concept. It's not just um, any a lack of uh, sense of the divine, whether in the universe or in humans and our fellow man or whatever. But uh, it's 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 an absence of um, the set of the, the words, the the ideas that teach us a proper orientation to ourselves, to each other, and to society. That's the God-shaped hole. And into the God-shaped hole comes all sorts of cults and cult leaders and uh, notions and memes that have not been manufactured out of an evolutionary process, that do not embed knowledge. And they're tempting. They're like the silver baubles, the tinsel. Uh, they, uh, they have an allure, especially to a person who has some um, a deep sense of alienation and uh, a, a lack of orientation. Um, you know, there's the temptation to fall for the cult that mm. doesn't embed knowledge. And I, I think it's above all other uh, issues that we confront the biggest problem um, is that God-shaped hole and we've just been through an event that demonstrates exactly how severe problems can get when um, we tear ourselves away from um, time-honored cultural groundings. It's not to say that any particular system one or the other is is um, uh, uniformly and in all ways and times and places better than another that would be a very arrogant type of assertion, but it just recognizes that there's, we're far more likely to find useful knowledge in um, traditions and um, cultural memes that have withstood the test of time and are found in flourishing societies. Um, that, that's kind of where my thinking goes. It's always, because it's complex, it's continually developing thinking. I hope to be um, argued with and um, improve my way of expressing it and uh, find people who express it much better. Uh, that's kind of, yeah, the summary, mm. the, in, the in a nutshell story. Well, I suppose the next question would be naturally that follows that is that, you know, Professor Mateus Desmet has talked about the social anxieties. Exactly. Uh, the lack of meaning yeah. and purpose, social discontent, lack mm. of social cohesion. Mm. And people that have followed on from Mateus have talked about they may not use the term God-shaped hole, but they've spoken about this kind of post-enlightenment phase where we've seen a disconnect between science and religion mm. uh, and, and this void yes. that's been left in the yeah, way that you That sense described. of meaninglessness and purposelessness. Yes. Will this form part of your analysis within the personal component? Will, I, will it... I, I don't know. Um, it'll certainly... I'll certainly be thinking about it, so I guess the answer then is yes. <laughs> but um, it might not be formally written down as a part. I'm not running the project. Um, but, you know, that... that <clears throat> what's striking for me, uh, you know, we, it, I don't believe that anybody's really done a very good job of describing exactly what we mean when we talk about a sense of meaning and purpose. And I, I, I ruminate on that quite often. And one of the things that strikes me is that I, I personally find it closely related to curiosity, to a sense of engagement with the world, that being out there trying to understand, trying to move your own um, miserable and pathetic understanding forward. Um, that that to me is when I when I see people who do that, 
you always get the sense that there's a profound meaning and purpose to them. And it doesn't need to be in an academic domain. It can be in a wide variety of things, learning how to be a parent or learning how to um, uh, run a society or something like that. It's those people who are curious about what what they engage with and, and, and engaged with the work uh, that, that have that sense of meaning and purpose. And the word work, I think, is important, um, closely allied to vocation, you know. So we, we, we can sort of, when you when you have regard for the concepts of meaning and purpose in that kind of um, feel, that kind of um, uh, orientation, I think you get you get closer to the truth, you know. Um, and yeah, uh, I think Desmet and others are hitting the nail nail on the head when they point to that pervasive alienation, that uh, there's that sense that people experience the, the they experience the whole and the lack of purpose and meaning and they try to fill it with some false idol and you, you there are many who describe consumerism and um this sort of a relentless accumulation of goods and fashions um as an uh, a useless attempt to fill the hole pile in more T-shirts and handbags, and maybe that hole, the hole will feel a little smaller. You know, uh, that kind of idea. But of course, it's useless if, mm. if you if you think about it from the construct of well, does that T-shirt, that handbag, cause you to be more curious about the world, uh, to be more engaged with the world? Well, then good luck with your on your journey for meaning, meaning and purpose. You know. Um, so yeah, I see it that way. The thing that gives me the twinkle in the eye is curiosity. Yes. Yeah. To me, it's this deep sense of awe. That's yes. It's wonder and yeah. curiosity. All of these things yeah. to me that 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 lights something for me. Yeah. I, I think it would be remiss, Nick, if this isn't included in your project because I think it's so <laughs> fundamental. I, I, but I understand the, yeah. the complexities of it. You know, yeah. you go from the com, the mechanistic piece of understanding policy to to some of the scientific analysis to then these kind of deeper political economic pieces to then even yes. deeper into yes. into philosophy, human condition. But ultimately, I think these are where some of the answers lie. But I, I recognize the complexity of, of, of tackling some of these issues. Um, I would like to close by asking you, because we discussed prior to this interview, what is, you know, have you seen any semblance of solution through your early analysis through PESEL? And actually, I think we agreed this is, this is emerging and there's a lot of work to be done. But actually, I think some of the solutions you've, you've described in detail today, in fact, the process itself, embracing this new way of knowledge it's not even necessarily a new way of knowledge mm. generation it's 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 reclaiming some of that knowledge generation yeah. process to me that is in part the solution the way in which you're embracing this is, is part of the solution but i'd like to flip the equation you know by dave potentially be known as an actuary in the past looking at risk what do you think some of the risks are now not only for your own projects but for for those who've been taking a critical look at what's been going on because mm. you know we've seen things labeled as conspiracy but we've also seen real conspiracy we've mm. seen fundamentalism mm. we've seen nihilism mm. we've seen this idea of the truth without uh, material uh, support for the truth <laughs> what what do you foresee and this cultish behavior you've t- mm. talked upon mm. what do you think are some of the risks in order to that, that could prevent us from actually finding a way forward from this 
And what do you see as some of the ways to mitigate some of those risks? Well, I think the way forward would be slower to the extent that we make any of the errors that the other side is making, the kind of um, the, the attempt to access a unitary uh, philosophy or policy, some, some kind of dogmatic, uh, artificial um, worldview, you know, uh, that, that uh, spell, tries to spell out something and stand in opposition to another uh, you know, I, I, so for example, I think you know one of the fundamental areas of of uh, judgment and logic and wisdom of the the globalists is this this their adherence to the false doctrine of utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, this idea that you can um, measure um, and make decisions in accordance with a greater good under that measure. Um, that's a that's a truly horrifically bad, philosophically bad, uh, practically bad uh, perspective. And what I sometimes hear, you know, the opposition, uh, the skeptics, saying th- things that sound to me awfully like, "Well, look, we see your spreadsheet uh, for controlling society, for managing society, for social engineering, uh, but we've got a better one," you know. <laughs> But they're, st- they're still left with the same error. They're still being utilitarian just with a different measure and yes. so on. And that actually highlights the problem with utility as a theory, utility theory. Um, but um, it's, it's a trap. Uh, you're not improving things. And it's, oh, we see the World Health Organization, your top-down hierarchical structure, and we don't like it, uh, so we're going to form one of our own. You know? <laughs> uh, that also is going to be something that nobody should like. You know? and, and so... I don't think you know, we need to be trapped in thinking we need some symmetry in of opposition uh, to what we're fighting against. Uh, and uh, I think so. I know that's a very, very high level answer, but don't assume that you need to ad- adopt the, the, the organizing principles or techniques or processes of the, the thing that you're fighting. Um, and don't become, don't allow yourself to become too dogmatic. I hear dogmatism emerging. And I experience backlash when I challenge it. For example, I've said numerous times, I think one of the problems with assessing the efficacy of treatments, whether we're talking about early treatment or or these uh, mRNA therapies or whatever, one of the problems with assessing efficacy is that COVID, the disease, is not dangerous enough to do that practically. You need such large sample sizes because it's not deadly enough. And so what I'm really saying there is, I am never approaching any level of grand conviction around efficacy or safety for that matter, uh, because there isn't enough data to do robust statistical and scientific analysis of those things. So for me, I'm prepared to entertain the idea that early treatment may have been uh, something that saved lives, but I'm also prepared to entertain the idea that we all never have enough data to, to prove that it was or is. Um, and instead, I would call, call upon people to to rest upon um, an ethical argument rather than on the statistical one and to say, look, in principle, we want doctors to be able to uh, make decisions to have agency not to be constrained by some top-down hierarchical body um, with respect to their own patients, that the doctor-patient relationship 
should be honored, held as sacrosanct, is a kind of ethical construct, a, a meme in society that I believe is one we should um, uphold and rather make that the point. So it's, it was wrong to ban whatever substance uh, or to try and smear it uh, because it, was, it constituted an intervention in the doctor-patient relationship, not because we were banning an effective thing. That seems to me to be a, a, a kind of dangerous route to go down, the second one, mm. um, because it, it suggests that, well, if, if the substance that was smeared or it turns out not to have been um, effective, then the intervention in the doctor-patient relationship was appropriate, and I don't think that's true. Mm. So, you know, th that's the kind of thing I try to shine the light on all the time is to, when I hear people becoming too doctrinaire, too dogmatic, too stentorian, um, I try to step in and just say, careful, you're starting to sound like the CDC or Anthony Fauci yourself, you know. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, well, I'd like to draw up two final points in conclusion then. So you mentioned this piece around symmetries, the, the risk of creating more of the same just in a different direction. Mm. But is there also a risk that we could just try and flip the page, the mirror? So if we go from centralization mm. to decentralization, utilitarian to a different form of... Uh, a different uh, yeah, value-based or value-based yeah, yeah. is there a risk that we just because I, I know there's a community called game b and what they've done is identified the problems with game a which is the legacy mm. systems that we're facing but a lot of that is then they're literally taking the mirror approach mm. the course correct and it may create it may mm. actually help create some course correction mm -hmm. but, but but to me i just uh, I, I can just imagine the swing of a pendulum that it eventually will create a new set of problems in the other direction Sure. Is that also a risk? And again, how do we mitigate against that particular problem? Well, I think you just the, my answer will sound standard to you, and it's it is standard for a good reason. You know, you make sure that you embed uh, conjecture and criticism ideas into all of your innovations. So, and you don't try and make wholesale innovations. You try and make innovations on the margin, rolling things back for a set of recent changes that were not subject to conjecture and criticism. No problem. Right, get rid of those innovations that were launched by these crazy utilitarians who thought they could socially engineer the world. Um, so by all means, delete those recent changes, uh, even going back 50 years, yes. for all I care. But um, once you get back to that previous stop point, if you like, stopping point, you um, then need to proceed with the um, creativity and humility of conjecture and criticism, looking at what happens when you make a change on the margin, introduce an innovation on the margin in some complex system. Be alive to the fact that you're no cleverer than the guy before and your change, uh, although it may come from a good place and be full of all sorts of wonderful and deep thinking, may actually be destructive and may actually have a, an unintended consequence that neither you nor anybody else around you foresaw. Um, that's the kind of right process to adopt. The fact that it fails, the fact that it takes us backwards is no reflection on you. It's a reflection on the complexity of the world. And it's uh, necessary to keep an eye on that at all times to adopt the posture of epistemic humility. Um, otherwise, you fall into the traps of many traps, psychological traps of uh, confirmation bias and rationalization and so on, um, willful blindness. Um, and into ethical traps where you 
perpetuate systems that are um, harmful and destroy the means of error correction by your own postures and attitudes. Indeed. Yeah. Well, this leads me to my very final question. Yeah. That epistemic humility that you yes. referenced. Yes. I want to speak on an individual level. Mm. Um, you're one of the probably less than a handful of the people in the last mm. p- people I've got to know in the last couple of years who I can rely to be that rock in the river mm-hmm. who's not swayed by the crowd, the group dynamics, the group think, which can actually compromise some of that epistemic humility. Mm-hmm. How have you managed to stay grounded? You know, people know you as an eloquent speaker. You, mm. You've got depth, but also mm. breadth in terms of uh, understanding the, some of the complexities, but you have you have humility and, and a level of uh, uh, mm. being humble around what you know and what you don't know. How do you stay grounded? Are, are there are there practices or or uh, rituals that you follow that keep you grounded in that way? Because it's we've seen other people get taken away of the tide, mm-hmm. falling into the dogma, falling into the fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. How do you personally remain grounded? Well, I, I go to other people to test ideas, um, and I, I, what I'm actively looking for is disagreement, uh, and then that becomes a little uh, conversation to mine for greater perspective and, and, and depth of understanding. Um, that's a kind of reflexive behavior for me. I'm forever picking up the phone on, an, on a complete sort of whim to just say, hmm, what do you think about this? Or so-and-so said that to me, and I'm not sure that it feels right, but I can't tell you why. Help me. You know, and so I do a lot of that kind of behavior. Um, and then I also uh, stay away from fads. And I have quite a broad definition of what constitutes a fad. So almost everything written in the last decade will be a fad. There will be gems that will survive at the test of time, but it's very hard to see which they are in advance. And so I tend to go back to older writing. Even I even become... Uh, a little bit careful with recent intermediations of old authors because they put a spin on things that um, they're an interpretation that can take you further away from the the sort of reality content uh, of the original of the original writers. So I'm a great believer in that. I refer to it as the, you know, not canonical literature and um, the older uh, time-honored writings and uh, a, a real effort to stay away from. The propaganda, the commercials, the, the the recent stuff, the the faddish books that shoot up onto the number one bestseller lists, and then people are forgotten about two years later. You know, there's no point reading that stuff. Um, yeah, so those are my my own personal disciplines, along with the with a regular diet of exercise. <laughs> that, that's about it, and the rest are probably uh, for for anybody looking in from the outside. The life would probably look pretty ordinary, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, and more than that, I can't say. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Very, yeah. very useful to hear. And this huge amount of respect for your day. I think this is actually probably one of the most important interviews that we've done so far oh. on the Elevate podcast. You'll see uh, if, if uh, the audience agrees. <laughs> <laughs> um, in closing, I'm sure people will be curious. You will, we've started to reach a new audience of the Elevate podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll be curious where to find out more about your work. I know you've personally experienced some of the challenges we've discussed today in terms of censorship. Uh, where are you sharing your writings right now? Where can people access Panda? What's the best way for people to find out more about the cuts and the work of Panda? The website, uh, which is www.pandata.org, is the place to start. Um, and that really opens up the whole universe of social media and um, partner organizations and so on. So that that's the go-to place. 
um, I would send people to. Uh, as for my own uh, personal reflections, uh, since I was suspended on Twitter, there's no real place where I'm actively engaging, and that's deliberate. I wanted to have a little gap and some time for reflection, get through this trip, which has involved meeting so many people. It's kind of a cathart- really a cathartic event, um, and then reassess how that was all going to flow. Maybe I don't need one anymore. Maybe it's just the interviews and, and more time to reflect rather than being on the treadmill of having to pump out uh, uh, social media posts, you know. So we'll see. Uh, I'll, I'll have to decide where to go. Thank you, Nick. It's been a real pleasure. Great Thanks. to be with you in Thanks, person Dan, for yeah. our oh, interview here on the Elevate podcast. So you've been watching the Elevate podcast here today with me and uh, Dan Aston Gregory and Nick Hudson. Great to finally have an in-person interview here on, on the Elevate podcast. Uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you please to hit the share button. This is, to me, as I said, it's been one of the most profound and important conversations we've had. And actually where people are looking for solutions, I think the seed of the solution has been found in this conversation today. Uh, so I encourage you to share this conversation and please go to danestongregory.com forward slash podcast to join our mailing list to find out about future conversations just like this one uh, and the uh, projects and initiatives that we're currently supporting. So I want to thank you for, for tuning in, engaging in this conversation and thank you again to Nick here on the Elevate podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Elevate podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share and subscribe. And you can also check out our video versions of the show on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, and Facebook by searching for Dan Aston Gregory. I also invite you to continue the conversation by joining our private community, the Elevate Network, and you can do so by visiting weareelevate.org. Thanks again. I'll see you on the next episode.